The book of Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, the translator heading reads, the conversion of Saul. (laughs) First of my Freudian slips. As you find yourself a place, uh, we return to our study of one of the greatest records of the circumstances and facts and figures and happenings surrounding the initial days and weeks and years of the early church. It's a transcript, a, a theologically informed, organized transcription of what occurred after Jesus rose from the dead. After He rose from the dead. Published under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that people like you and me who believe may be sure about what we have been taught. And this morning we encounter the report of what, what can be described as perhaps the most consequential event in the entire book, at least post-ascension, the most notorious persecutor of the church, really a terrorist, really, uh, Saul, sometimes called the Christian killer, who was introduced during the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen, in in chapter 7, becomes Saul the saved sinner. A man you and I are more familiar with to call the Apostle Paul. Paul the Apostle. Author of a significant portion of the New Testament. the, The man who will loom larger than life for the remainder of the book of Acts. This is his Damascus experience. So consequential, so important that later theologians would say that along with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Saul's conversion, Saul's conversion forms a pair, two of the most convincing proofs of the claims of Christianity. Listen, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ and this morning, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul the Apostle to the faith. If you never thought of it that way, look, this old guy, Lord Littleton. You probably haven't heard of him. 1700s. He wrote a book with a, a friend, two theologians, and, and he wrote concern. One, the other friend wrote about the resurrection and its proof it, for the claims of Christianity. And then Littleton, Lord Littleton, wrote in the 1700s that uh, uh, the claims of Christianity proven by the conversion of Paul. Either He wrote either Paul was an imposter. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? An imposter, an enthusiast with an overactive imagination was deceived by the fraud of others, or what he declared to be the cause of his conversion, which we're reading about here in Acts chapter 9, did all really happen? And if so, if all of this really happened, therefore, if this is the case, the Christian faith, he wrote, is truly a divine revelation. So let's read it for ourselves. Perhaps one of the most important apologies for what we believe. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. I'll read through 31. Follow along and then I'll pray. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he, the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do verse 7 the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open he saw nothing so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank verse 10 Now there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. What grace. I'm sorry. Every time I read it this week. What a provision of grace for Saul. Verse 14, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Next paragraph, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God and all who heard him were amazed and said is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot was made known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the apostles disciples and they were all afraid of him 
For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists and they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer? Now, Father, you are mighty to save. Mighty to save. Your words are life and light and truth and wisdom and food. Show us your son and what he can do. Convict our hearts where they've grown cold. Delight us with your glory displayed in your risen Son and his work in us. Take, take the, the letters from these pages and imprint them on our hearts. I pray you would breathe life, spiritual life into this room for the one who is, knows you and has been walking with you for decades and the one who walked in this morning wondering why they're even here. Do what only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> well, what, what, what kind of, let me ask you a question, what kind of person would you say, what kind of person is likely to convert to Christianity? What kind of person is likely to convert to Christianity? This is, this is a more difficult question than it appears. Why do people believe? Why do, why do people believe? Why do people have faith? Why are there religious people in the world in the first place? Why has the human race always had, even if it was only a trace, a, a conviction that there was something more than things, more than we can see or sense or, or even fully explain? What is it about some people that causes them to convert, in particular, to Christianity? You, you think, I would think, you would think it, it, would, it would be the case that those voted most likely to become Christians, maybe when you were in high school, right? I was not. I was voted most likely to go to jail. But, <clears throat> but those voted most likely to become Christians would be the nice people, right? The moral people, the ones with good ethics, good impulses, the ones who have it all together, right? Or the ones who were raised in Christian homes or living in places and cultures dominated by the Christian faith and values and principles, the, the church. But that's not the case. It, it never has been. That's not the case. 
C.S. Lewis in, in his book, Mere Christianity, which you didn't know was actually an adaptation of a BBC uh, radio series during World War II. C.S. Lewis, then it was adapted to a book. He took this subject head on. And this has influenced so many people since the 50s. Listen, he writes, C.S. Lewis, there is, when you come to think of it, a reason why nasty people might be expected to turn to Christ in greater numbers than nice ones. Let me read that again. There is, when you come to think of it, a reason why nasty people come might be expected to turn to Christ in greater numbers than nice ones. He writes, that was what people objected to about Christ during his life and on earth. He seemed to attract such awful people. And I know you're all thinking about some awful person right now. And you, Spoiler alert, it's you. <laughs> <clears throat> he writes, that is what people still object to and always will. Do you, do you not see why, he asks? That's what he writes. If you have sound nerves and intelligence and health and popularity and a good upbringing, you are likely to be quite satisfied with the, your character as it is. Why drag God into it, you might ask. A certain level of good conduct comes fairly easy to you. A certain level of good conduct comes fairly easy to you. <laughs> now I'm going to identify what he says next. It is very different for the nasty people. It's very different for the nasty people. The little, the low, the timid, he writes, the warped, thin-blooded, lonely people, or the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people, there I am. If they make any attempt at goodness at all, they learn in double-quick time that they need help. It is Christ or nothing for them. It is taking up the cross and following or else despair. They are lost sheep. He came specially to find them. C.S. Lewis writes, they are the awful set that go about with him, Jesus. And of course, the Pharisees then and still today say, as they said from the first, if there were anything really true about Christianity, listen, if there were anything really true about Christianity, these kinds of people would not be Christians. That's been, that's been the charge since the very beginning, as Jesus was accused of hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Listen, we have come to the we have come to the part of the story in Acts where the nastiest of the nasty becomes a Christian. So far-fetched it seems that our author Luke will repeat the sequence three times in the book as if to attempt to reinforce and remind us, the readers, that the man that we know as Saul, also known as Paul the Apostle, and if I stop right here, don't be confused. Saul is Paul, okay? Saul is Paul. You can, that's a tattoo. Saul is Paul. A Jewish, it's a Jewish name. He had a Jewish name and a Hebrew name. Not uncommon for a man of the world, no different than today. Jesus didn't give him a new name when he became a Christian, <laughs> contrary to popular uh, belief. This is, this is like they did with my grandfather, who was an immigrant, uh, and was born of immigrants into the U.S. My grandfather, James, actually had a Ukrainian name, Dimitro, that we didn't know until he was much older. That he was actually Dimitro. He was Dimitro and he was James, two names. Paul the Apostle will be called Saul, 
11 more times in Acts. See, he has two names. He didn't change names here, okay? But back to my point. Okay, so we catch this. And I'm probably going to call him Paul a lot during my sermon because I know him better as Paul. But Paul is Saul. Back to my point. This is the point in the story where the most notorious enemy of Christianity becomes a Christian. And if Luke had not recorded what occurred for us, the readers, we might still be harboring some skepticism even today as to whether or not what we've been taught is true about him. Which begs the question, big question, who is it that God saves? Who, Who are the kind of people that God saves? Who is it that God the Father delights in rescuing and then demonstrating for everyone to see in and through the person that he claims is his own? Saul's experience on the Damascus Road, as we just read, it's like a gold standard. It's, a, it's, a, it's an archetype, a, a ruler in which we can measure how great God's power really is. The extent and boundaries of his grace, his reach, which defy. I wouldn't just say that they exceed our expectations. They defy our expectations. How, how gracious and forgiving and patient could God be? And we could understand him to be, and our sensibilities would require us to be almost, it feels like almost bordering on scandalous. We must be amazed. Be amazed as we recount Saul's conversion. Be be amazed as a church. As as the church was amazed, we'll see it in the text there. And and we And we should be amazed over and over and over and over again as you and I and countless others continue to join the ranks of the awful set of people who follow Jesus. Be amazed. Point number one of three. One of three. Be amazed at God's power to save. Be amazed at God's power to save. Look back, verse one again. But, but Saul, interrupting the story, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, we'll get to that in a second, men or women, not just the men, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Do you, do you feel the, how evil that first verse reads Saul was no ordinary religious guy he's breathing out fire and brimstone the word there he's he's snorting like a bull ready to charge the vitriol the the hate the 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 passion deep inside him that motivated him to do all that he could to snuff out the life of this new, small, but growing sect referred to here as the way, which is a deeply, deeply Jewish way of calling what we believe in Jesus. He's the way, but they were waiting for the way. The prophets 
were waiting for the way. They were longing for the way. They weren't just waiting around and watching the horizon. They were searching the Scriptures and hoping and praying and living in such a way that one day the way to salvation would come. And it came in the man named Jesus. Paul, Saul, he stood in the way of those who he thought were going the wrong way. He said, give me my orders so I can round up these people and try them with you for heresy and treason against the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Verse 3. Listen, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. It's about the middle of the day as the accounts go. And verse 4, the, the, and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You should have thought of, anticipated, why, why are you persecuting the church? But the church and him united. He's persecuting Jesus. Peter, all right, Paul, Saul, I've got all kinds of names in my head now. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Remember, this book is not, not primarily about the apostles and the ch early church leaders and the church. It's about, Luke, Luke wrote it in the very first sentence, hinted at it, about all that Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Thanks for praying for me. I had COVID too. I gave it to Mike. So, <laughs> Listen, This book's not primarily about Saul, the apostles, the early church. This is about all that Jesus had continued to do after the resurrection. So there is no surprise at one of the most consequential moments in the story, in the account of the early church. Thanks, Dustin. <clears throat> Jesus is alive. Jesus is in command. And when Jesus wants something and wills something and does something and makes his appearance, he has the power to stop even the nastiest person in his or her tracks. He has power. He has power to save. He has the power to stop even the greatest enemy the church had ever seen. A giant, we're reading here, has been slain when nothing more, with nothing more than words. Verse 6, watch, watch the Savior become Paul's captain. Verse 6, first instruction, rise. And enter this city. He could have crushed him then. He could have never rose again from the ground. He could have met his end at that moment on the road to Damascus, but instead, Jesus, Jesus had more for Paul. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Yeah, salvation's much more than just forgiveness. We're talking about the Lord of heaven and earth co-opting, capturing, conquering, and deploying 
for his purposes, for his pleasure. A giant has been slain. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. We hear other accounts, and the other accounts would get even more details about this, but they, they just stood speechless, hearing the voices, the voice, but seeing no one. Those men are still alive when this book is coming out, presumably. So there are witnesses here who are corroborating what has happened. They didn't he- see anybody, but they certainly heard it, and they were speechless. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground. He obeyed. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He had already been transformed. He's going to be a new person. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Oh, the wonder of the power of God and salvation. Paul contributed nothing to this. There's no discussion going on here. No theology on tap. And they're arguing over Paul contributed nothing. He had been studying his whole life. He had been searching for the way, but the way found him. The only explanation is that Jesus was going to do what he was going to do, and no man, not even Saul, could resist. No different today than it was back then. Don't be fooled. Don't, don't wait for a Damascus, even wait for a Damascus Road experience. I heard one author say, uh, <coughs> if you wanted us all to have this kind of experience, a Damascus experience like this, he'd give us horses and sandals so we could fall off. But we don't. It's no different today. Mine, out here last night with friends, I, my, my Damascus moment was kind of like, I'm in a haunted house on Halloween where a man dressed as a corpse came out of a coffin, preached the gospel, and I was converted on the spot. But on the other hand, my wife, she's in the room, she has a sweet story of praying on a swing with her brother at six years old. Jesus is going to do what he's going to do, no matter if you're six years old on a swing you're in a haunted house that turns out to be run by Baptists. <coughs> this is not a very good haunted house. <laughs> Jesus is going to do what he's going to do. No one is beyond his reach. Or has, to be, has been too sinful. Too many skeletons in your closet. Or has been so opposed and hardened to his patience and mercy and grace. You've heard the gospel a thousand times. You're here this morning and you've, you feel like you've just blown it and resisted it and actually you've argued against it, not only with your words and your mind but and your heart, but your very life. You've lived opposed to God. In some ways like Paul, persecuting him. May we never forget that Jesus saves nasty people, broken people, people who reveled in their sin, who were good at being bad, even when everyone around us thought we were good. Isn't that the truth? How often we were good at being bad even when people thought we were being good and we were cheered on. You knew, I knew deep down inside that I and you never, ever, ever measured up to my own standards, which causes shame. Other people's standards, 
and most awful of all God's standards. We are all enemies. We just fight differently. And for those of us who believe today, just like that day when Paul, Saul, Saul, Paul, he's got two names, Saul, Paul fell to the ground and heard the Lord's call, we mustn't ever lose sight of the reality that God only and ever saves nasty people like you and me. None of you were qualified to be counted among us and his church. We are enemies. Giants are being slayed every day, even in this city, even in California, God is conquering enemies. Can't ever lose sight of this. You and I who know Christ and have trusted Christ have been conquered like Saul. No contribution was made on my behalf. I might have thought and felt like I was preparing for the moment. like somehow he was going to be like a gentleman. One day I'd bump into him in Starbucks and he'd say, you've been looking for the way. I am the way. And I'd say, I knew it. And I'd go and follow. No. Humbled to the ground in my heart. Be amazed. Be amazed at God's power to save. And listen, listen, here's the danger. I think, let's think of that. The danger is that we would lose our amazement at this great salvation. And you know what happens when you lose your amazement at this great salvation? Even if you are a Christian, you have been saved. You had your moment. You were humbled. The Lord called you. You got up and followed him. And then at some point, that just became old news. It's in a photo album at home. I'm off to do greater and better things. You know what that looks like as a church? This is where we have to stick here. Being just amazed that I'm a Christian. If not, we'll go looking for something else to be amazed at. You know what that looks like in a church? That looks like a church that finds more important things to work on than this. Doesn't mean all those things aren't, have, don't have some value, but we become about social justice issues. We become about serving the, the, the marginalized and the weak and the, the vulnerable in our community. Again, all important things. All kinds of social issues. All kinds of good works we could do. All of which are, have some value, but they're not amazing. I got neighbors that give to nonprofits that feed the poor in the community. It's not amazing. It is grace, common grace, that they would care for others. This is amazing grace. <clears throat> and this is enough to keep us going until we hit the 100 year mark if the Lord doesn't return. Be amazed at the power of God to save sinners like you and me. Point number two. Briefer, be amazed at God's power to change, to change people, to transform us. Look with me at verse 10. I'm going to just rip through it, enjoy the story a little, and we'll get to our point here. Verse 10 says, now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? He's 
responding, responding to the Lord. There were Christians in this city at this point. This is historic. People knew the street that, uh, that Paul was staying on. This is all, there are lots of witnesses. This would be the kind of thing we'd say, okay, what I heard is true. Luke put it in a document. Everyone's been reading it, researching it, validating it. The Lord, verse 11, said to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. That street still exists today. And at the house of Judas, not the Judas you're thinking of, but another Judas, look, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And you just, what is Paul praying? No. For mercy? What's he recounting? The faces that he barged into houses and took people captive? Separating children from their mothers? Husbands from their wives? He's praying, verse 12. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Good luck, Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight again. Why sight? Humble him. How dependent is he at that moment? In a strange city, in a strange house, in a city that knew he was there to take people to prison, to be prosecuted, and there he is blind, not eating, not drinking. And Ananias, verse 13, is pretty smart. This is how you should, if the Lord asks you to do something like this, Lord, I've heard of, from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And let's be clear, the rumors and the information regard you didn't need Twitter, you didn't need any sort of media for, no social media, no news stations or internet to know that Paul is, the, Saul, Paul the Apostle, is on the hunt. He's hunting down Christians. Can you imagine this? He's hunting down Christians. He's coming from town to town with papers in his hand, and he's taking you away if you confess Christ. He was more than just a guy they knew about. How would you feel? I would, we would know friends, fellow brothers that we linked arms with, united to Christ, united to one another. Now, so-and-so's husband is gone. We don't know what happened to him. This family's been broken up because they were Christians. And it's all because of Paul. We hate him. I get updates regularly from Sovereign Grace people in the Ukraine right now. Not because I'm Ukrainian, but just part of, part of our family of churches, our denomination around the world. This last, I think it was this last week or within the last seven to ten days, one of the pastors was arrested along with his wife and they took him away. And then, just to be nice, they released the husband. But they don't know why they're keeping the wife. And then we got news from someone else that was in the cell with her. This is this week, really happening. Whatever it is, 6,000 miles away report that she's in a cell with six or eight other women who are Christians. And that's all they know. You want to talk about hating, <laughs> reviling something? I would assume it's the Belarusian government at this point. 
this wasn't just, I heard about this guy and I'm, I gotta be kind of careful if I'm gonna relate to him. No, we, this guy we hate. He, he's not just God's enemy. He's, he's my enemy. Ananias is going and asking me to go to help a man who had come to his home to drag him away and most likely do with him the same as they did with Stephen. That's what's going on here. Verse 13, but Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument. And you just feel it again. The Lord's in command. (coughs) He is a chosen instrument of mine. He belongs to Jesus now to carry my name, not Saul's name, not the Apostle Paul's name, before the Gentiles. And this is, we can confirm this. This we say, okay, this makes sense with what I've been taught. Before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I, and this is the shocker, I will show him how much he must suffer. God has a wonderful plan for your life. If you know that, that old evangelism little booklet, right? He loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life, Saul. How much are you going to suffer for the sake of my name? Don't lose sight. Could, could have been left for dead right there in Damascus on the road. This is all, this is all gravy. <laughs> this is grace. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, he calls him brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which (coughs) you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. I don't know what that is, but here's the question. Was he delusional, overactive? Imagination is, it was he deceived? They told him, hey, there were scales on your eyes. You thought you were blind. You really weren't blind, but you kind of, it was just like, oh, experience there. And some, he's either delusioned himself, deceived, overactive imagination, or this really happened. And then he rose and was baptized. Can you imagine who baptized him? And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Can you imagine this nasty man now with them? A new mission, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now all of Paul's training (laughs) throughout his whole life, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He has been trained and a teacher of the law. He was waiting. He was watching. Now he is convinced Jesus is the way. He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. (laughs) Let's be clear. They weren't amazed because of what he was claiming. They were amazed that it was him. Isn't, is not this the man, Luke writes, middle verse 21, who made havoc in Jerusalem 
of those who called upon his name. (coughs) And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests. Increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You could feel it. The table has turned. This man has not only been saved, but now the cat is out of the bag. No one can deny it. Paul has been utterly transformed. The way he saw the world flipped on its head. He's been transformed. Verse 23, so much so that when many days have passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? Man, this guy... This guy's become a Christian. It only takes a couple days for them to decide, we got to get rid of him. But their plot became known to Saul. I'd love to know how that happened, how he got news. But they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But those that he had come to kill are going to save him. Verse 25, his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. same this this utter what feels immediate transformation and i'm convinced we all convinced paul still had room to grow (laughs) but his transformation this power of god to take a man and to save him recommission him (laughs) for his glory and then utterly change him now in this life that he might he might work for the advance of the gospel rather than against it with all of his life to take everything he has and turn it in the other direction the same the same could be said for us we're all in progress we're all like i said before the nasty people but not all the nastiness has gotten out of you yet and that's where I would say, you know, spoiler alert, if you're looking around and saying, yeah, these, some of these people, really, it's you, right? <clears throat> it's me. That's why you've heard it before. Ray Ortland says it so well. Everybody and this church, this is, this is the, the philosophy on which we relate and fellowship together. Everyone in this church needs a lot of time to sort out our complicated lives. We need a safe place to do that. And a lot, a lot, a lot of gospel. The good news. That's why we sing the songs we sing. That's why we preach the the sermons we preach. That's why when we serve and, and gather together as couples and as small groups and we gather all over the city, we never lose sight of what is most important, that Christ died for sinners like you and I. And over time, sometimes in a rapid pace, sometimes not so much, when, when that, that man preached the gospel and I responded, and then he invite, the, the man dressed as a corpse then invited me to come forward to pray. To my amazement, there were others like us, other, other teens that were not so, we'll say, ethically <laughs> informed. And we came forward and he prayed for us, and I was changed in a moment, but I'm still being changed. I need lots of time. And you are a safe place and you do preach the gospel. Be amazed 
be amazed that God can save. And he has the power to change. The person sitting next to you won't, won't, Lord willing, because of the power of God, be the same person a year from now. The last point, very briefly. Be amazed. This is the... This is the most fabulous moment in the, I think, in the, the narrative. Be amazed at God's power to reconcile. God has power to reconcile people like you and I. We're in a room full of people who are not only enemies of God, but we were separated one from the other. Right? Hating and being hated. You were either hating or they were hating you. And now we're in a room loving. This is amazing for Paul and the disciples. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, so they, they dip, him out, <coughs> dip him out the hole in the wall. He goes down the basket. He gets to Jerusalem. And when he came, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And some of you might even feel like that today. I'm attempting to join the disciples. And they were all afraid. <laughs> Of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, here's the power of God. Barnabas, the early church leader, took him and brought him to the apostles. Can you imagine the tension in the room? <clears throat> brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So they heard his testimony. And they said, power to save, power to change. Now he's one of us. Power to reconcile. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they, they cared for him, they loved him, they had been reconciled to him, they were one with him. Paul's future was wrapped up in these disciples in Jerusalem, their future. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to home, Tarsus. And that's a wonderful picture of what's happening here, even today. You feel like you're an outsider? You might even be a little scary. We might be afraid of you. <laughs> and I'm talking about members of the church, not necessarily guests. You're like, don't excuse yourself. You, you got a story, and you got a reputation, and you're still you. Even though God is, has the power to transform you, you are being transformed. You're not done yet. But as your testimony is observed and heard and celebrated, you experience what Paul experiences. Brothers like Barnabas commending you. This is how it works with church membership. When, when the pastoral team says that we commend this person to you, we have met with them and heard their story. We have watched them. They have been among us. We have heard them trusting in Christ, and we can see the evidence of their faith in their transformed lives. The once they were part of the awful set, they seem to be getting a little more beautiful as they go. And so, welcome them as reconciled enemies. Welcome them as brothers and sisters. Look around the room. We are, we are trophies of his grace. And we embrace them and celebrate them. What a glorious gospel that the world 
oh, the world is craving for. That word, reconciliation. It's right there. God, be amazed as they were amazed. Be amazed at his power to save. Be amazed at his power to change. Be amazed at God's power to reconcile. And it's that simple. Listen, before, before I close and I pray and we sing and we dismiss you, it's, it's that simple. For the one who is on the road looking for the way. All you need is to feel your need. You don't need to have done anything. Your record doesn't commend you and didn't commend any of us. It's all grace. And if you think you're outside of the reach of his grace and you are even wondering if you want, all you need to do is lay low and listen to his voice, welcoming you. Allow Christ to conquer your life. Trust in his work as a substitute for you. A substitute for you and all that you've done and all of your sin and all the sin that lies out ahead for you. Trust in his work on the cross. He, he'll take the penalty that you deserve. Why? Because this is the kind of people that God saves for his pleasure and glory. <laughs> if you've been trying to be good and you know you're not, this is where it begins. On the road to Damascus, listening to the Lord's invitation to rise up and follow him. Would you relent and repent <laughs> and then trust him? Let me pray for you. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, we're a room full of people who we're unlikely to be converts. Paul might be the gold standard, <laughs> proof positive in what it is that we proclaim and believe and trust that you have done through us through the work of Christ, but Lord, we're all, we're all in desperate need of your power to save and to change and to reconcile us with yourself. <coughs> and one another. So Lord, we pray you would do that again today for the one who is wondering, the one who feels far off, the one who is angry at you. Would you save the same as we read today and we've experienced time and time again in our lives. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.